0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee.
1: We are currently engaged in a
0: verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, so grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor,
1: Jim McClarty.
0: Here is what is coming up the next few weeks I will be here this Wednesday And then on Saturday Janine and I will start driving toward Texas For the conference that begins in earnest on Sunday night So if we don't get on the road on Saturday We won't be there in time So next Sunday our friend Don Tyndall will be here last time that he spoke here everybody seemed to enjoy it thoroughly and so I'm very much looking forward to getting to hear what he says in my absence the following Wednesday Steve will be teaching here and the Sunday after that Micah will be standing here as we make our way home from Texas so come and support these men make the effort to be here I like the fact that the pulpit here at GCA often hosts a mixture of people so that you can hear from several different voices. And we all believe the same stuff, but it's interesting how God uses the gifts and talents of various different men in order to promote his word. Those messages, by the way, from Don, from Steve, from Micah, won't be on the website until we get back from Texas. And so when I get back, I'll not only have all the messages from the Texas conference to get up on that website, but then we'll post the messages that take place here. So nobody email me. I'm saying this to the folks out on the internet now. Nobody email me in a week and say, hey, where's the new message? It will be up when I return home. We are still working our way verse by verse through chapter 8 of the book of Romans with musical accompaniment, apparently. I'm sure at this point you're probably thinking, you know, Jim has been talking a lot lately about... Flesh versus spirit, and walking in the flesh versus walking in the spirit, and certainly by now, after several weeks of talking about that, certainly he must have completely exhausted the topic. Ho, 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 you would be wrong, because we're going to start by talking about that again this morning. I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 5, and so if you want to join me there, you can. Because this theology and this distinction that Paul makes between walking by the flesh or walking by the spirit is standard Pauline theology. It's not just limited to the book of Romans. He talks about it various different times in various different places. The most obvious of those other references is here in the book of Galatians. Now, in the book of Galatians, he's been speaking a lot about freedom because the Judaizers have come to Galatia and have tried to put the Gentiles there back into bondage to the law. The particular thing that they were encouraging was circumcision so that they would have the mark of the Abrahamic covenant on them. And then Paul said that that obedience to circumcision would obligate the Gentiles to then keep the whole of the law once they went down that path they were going to be responsible for the whole rest of the law so Paul's argument is always in favor of freedom that Christ has set you free from the law he has set you free from bondage so he speaks a lot about freedom in fact in chapter 4 he created an allegory between the bondwoman and the free woman so that he could say that we are children of the free a phrase that I love very much we are children of the free at the beginning of chapter 5 then he says it was for freedom that Christ set us free that redundancy is on purpose Christ set us free for the sake of freedom so that we could truly be free from the standards and regulations of the law that would only serve to condemn us. But we're free from that. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery, the bondage of slavery. Then later in that same chapter, starting at verse 13, that's where we're (coughs) going to begin reading. He said for you were called to freedom brethren only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. So again it's consistent Paul says you are free you are free from the law. Grace is the way that you are saved. But should we sin all the more that grace may abound? The answer is absolutely not. Hear the same kind of warning. You are free. You are called to freedom. You are children of the free. But don't use your freedom in order to engage the flesh. And in a moment, he's going to tell you what the deeds of the flesh look like. So you're free but not free to sin against God. What you are is free to worship God, free to praise God, free to honor God, a freedom and ability that you did not have before when you were sold out and slave to your master, which was sin. Sin and flesh, which is made all the more obvious by the law, could only serve to condemn you, And that put you into a permanent bondage to that ministry of condemnation. But then Christ set you free from all that, being free from it. Don't go back to it. Don't go back to utilizing your flesh for those things that are rebellious against God. That's very consistent Pauline theology. Yes, grace, 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 grace. But then walk like it. Then act like it. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one saying. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've talked about that over the last few weeks, where I've said, if you indeed love your neighbor... If you're sacrificial toward your neighbor, I don't have to tell you not to steal from your neighbor. I don't have to tell you don't kill your neighbor if you love your neighbor. I don't have to tell you don't covet what your neighbor has if you, in fact, sacrificially love your neighbor. So Paul could say that the whole of the law comes down to love your neighbor as yourself. Where did he get that? He got that from Jesus, who said, when he was asked what the great command was, he said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Paul picks up that very idea and says, the whole of the law is satisfied and fulfilled in that one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite And devour one another. Take care lest you are consumed by one another. He's not talking about literal biting. He's not talking about literally consuming each other or devouring each other. He's talking about the way you treat each other in contrast to sacrificially loving each other. He's saying if you continue down the road of criticizing each other, backbiting, gossiping, pointing at each other, eventually you're going to damage each other to the point where you're consumed by your dislike for each other. So I say, if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you are consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So even though you're called to freedom, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh. But if you walk by the Spirit, then you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You may recall last week that I said it is the Spirit of God that gives you not only the impetus, not only the inspiration to walk differently than you used to walk, it is also the Spirit of God that gives you the power to walk differently than you used to walk. It is the Spirit of God indwelling you that allows you to say no to the things you never used to be able to say no to. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, because the flesh sets its desires against the spirit we know this Paul's already told us this in the book of Romans that the flesh and the spirit are at enmity with each other they're at war with each other which is why now I keep saying over and over get in the fight get in the battle if you know that the spirit of God is in opposition to your flesh and your flesh is in opposition to the spirit if you're not in the battle then somebody won You gave up the fight. Flesh won. So get in the fight. Here he says it again. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh. Because these two are in opposition to one another. So that you may not do the things that you're pleased to do. Doesn't that sound like Romans 7? The things I want to do. What I prefer to do. That's not what I do. That's not what I desire. I end up doing the thing I don't want to do. And so I find this law in my flesh, this principle in my flesh, that where I would do good, evil is present with me. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit you're not under the law. Well, there's more good news. If you're walking by the spirit of God, then you are in fact loving God, heart soul mind straight, love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, you're fulfilling the law. You don't you don't have to have the law imposed on your conscience because you have the spirit of God not only as a governor on your thoughts but as a governor on your behavior you have the standards of God written on your heart therefore you don't have to be under commandments written in stone that are external from you because you have the very mind and heart of God within you and therefore free from the law oh happy condition now By the way, Tom's back. Did you hear that? Even with his croaking voice, I got an amen over there. I just want to point that out. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. In other words, he says they're obvious. When you see the deeds of the flesh, it's not hard to go, yeah, those are the deeds of the flesh. I see those. They're right there on my television. They're Right there in the movies. They're right there in most advertising. They're right there all over the internet. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of (coughs) anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. As if that list wasn't comprehensive enough, Paul said, this will give you some idea what I'm talking about. And things like that. Sensual, fleshly things. Those are all the deeds of the flesh. Of which I warn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit, which is the outgrowth of the spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law now. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us then walk by the Spirit. Do you understand the logic of that phrase? Paul is saying... We love to say that we have the Spirit of God inside us. He has chosen us. He has elected us. He has determined that we're going to be saved before the foundation of the world. He has put his Holy Spirit inside us, separating us from the world, and so we are therefore saved by the Spirit. We love that theology. We love the theology that says, yes, we are saved not by our works, not by our effort, despite the fact that we have this Sinful flesh that we live in, we are nevertheless saved by the Spirit. And he says, if you're saved by the Spirit, act like it. Walk by the Spirit. Conduct your life in such a way that it's obvious that you're not of the world. As Jesus said, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. And far too much of modern Christianity is trying very hard to appeal to the world so that the world won't hate them. But if you indeed walk by the spirit, the world is going to recognize that there's something different about you and they are going to dislike you because you're like a bright neon sign that's flashing saying that they're not walking godly, that they're not righteous, that they're not saved people. And they don't want to hear that, which is why there is this very organized effort going on right now to shut down Christianity. They want to squash it completely so that the world can feel good about their fleshly enterprises without anybody being a red neon flag pointing out that, no, they're wrong. No, that's not the way to actually be righteous or good. And so they're going to try to crush it. So walk by the Spirit. Be different than the world. If you say you're saved by the Spirit, if you live by the Spirit then walk by the Spirit. You see the logic of that? If we live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another. So then what do you do if somebody within the church, somebody within the confines of the church, is caught in a sin? Now that he has said, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Well, then what if somebody does that? What if someone does sin? Well, that's the beginning of chapter six. Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, then you that are spiritual. Now, do you have some sense of what he's talking about? Walking by the spirit. Those of you who live your life according to the spirit of God, you that are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself, lest you too should be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. So there's the law of condemnation. There's that law that came down from Sinai, the law of Moses that leads to exposing you for the sinner that you actually are, which is why Paul would refer to it as a ministry of death and a ministry of condemnation. But we are not, since we're not under that law, we are not lawless. We are under the law of Christ. And so he says the way you fulfill the law of Christ is to look out for one another, to take care of each other, which is why Jesus would say, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. By your love one for the other so if you bear one another's burdens thus you will fulfill the law of Christ alright to the book of Romans turn to Romans chapter 8 we're going to start reading at verse 1 so that you can see the similarity between what he wrote in the book of Galatians and what he wrote to the Romans and then we will get to the <coughs> new stuff about our adoption as children. Romans 8, starting at verse 1, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You see the contrast? There's the spirit of life in Christ Jesus Who sets you free, there's that freedom language, and he set you free from the law of Moses, which he refers to as the law of sin and death. The contrast is enormous. I just want you to feel that contrast. For what the law of Moses could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, They set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot. Please, God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. For if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. For if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. (laughs) But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice that he said you are under obligation, if you have the Spirit of God, to put to death the deeds of the body and live. That is your obligation. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are The sons of God. Okay, new concept. All of that was in fact introduction to get us to verse 14. You got the context now? You got a sense of how Paul is building his argument? Do you understand the flesh versus the spirit thing? You understand the battle that is ongoing? And then despite the fact that we are who we are, that we are what we're like, nevertheless, God decided that he was going to make us his children. Now, in order to understand the language that Paul is going to use here, You have to understand that in most Roman households, well-to-do households, the firstborn son was the heir. The firstborn son would inherit everything that the father had, whether that was lands, whether that was cattle, whether that was houses, whatever he had, the oldest son would inherit. There was usually an inheritance for the other children, but the firstborn son Got the lion's share. He was the heir. But then there were also usually servants in the household. The servants, even though they were in the household, were not heirs. The servants could not inherit anything. In fact, oftentimes, the eldest son, in inheriting everything, (laughs) would inherit the servants. So you have to understand the difference between the servants and the heir because Paul is about to say God could have left us all in the position that we deserve, which is simply to be servant to him. After all, he's God. After all, he's completely sovereign. He's completely in charge. After all, he's much higher and grander and more wonderful than any of us. He could have said that we were all going to remain in constant servitude to him. And even if he had said that, that'd be fair. It's better to be servant in the household of God than in hell forever. So I'll take the servant thing. But in an act of astounding grace, Paul is going to say he didn't make you servants. He made you sons and daughters through the King James says sonship, the NASB says adoption, the concept is placing someone in the position of being a child, a son, a daughter. Not that you deserve it. Not that you, like my daughter, can point at me and say, that's my dad, and so we're flesh and blood And I deserve to be called his daughter. And you do. You deserve to be called my daughter. That's what you deserve. But God decided that we, though we weren't blood relatives, though we had no inheritance to speak of, though we're Gentiles and not of the chosen nation of Israel, so we don't have the background, we don't have the promises, we don't have the covenants, All through the Old Testament, you see that language of childhood, the children of Israel. God speaks of being husband to them. He makes them blood relative to him. He makes them associated with him. And so they have, if I can use this word, the right to say that they're in the family of God. But not us Gentiles. We got nothing. And so God determined... To place us in the position of sonship, of daughtership, and because we're sons and daughters, we become, according to Paul, heirs. We inherit from the Father. Do you understand what I just said to you? Yes, I'm talking about you, Joni. I'm talking about you, Steve. I'm talking about Paul here. I'm talking about <laughs> wretched people. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to point you all out. as But, but Joni's nodding. She knows herself. I'm talking about human beings who have no right, no authority, no leave, no warrant to ever go before God and say, I want to be heir of everything you have. Only Christ Jesus gets to be that. Only Christ Jesus shares in the wealth of the Father. He's the firstborn. He inherits everything. Paul is about to say, we become joint heirs with Christ. Of everything God has. Grace, 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 grace. I mean, grace, 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 grace. I mean, if God wanted to give his son a reward for everything he's done... What can God whip up? I mean, God who made the universe and everything that's in it and all the heavenly stuff that we know nothing about yet. The things that our eyes have not seen, that our ears have not heard, the things that haven't even entered into our mind yet, the great glory of God, if he wants to put all that together and say, that belongs to my son now, how, how, I'm going to pick on Joni again, how does Joni get to say, I'm part of that? God put his
1: holy, divine nature
0: into earth. Exactly right. And that's an important way that you just put it, Gladys, because it is God who put his divine glory into her. She didn't go get it. She didn't pursue it. She didn't deserve it. She didn't work for it. She didn't obligate God to give it to her. God, out of astounding grace, gave her the down payment, which is what the Holy Spirit is, the down payment of everything else she's about to inherit. It kind of makes this life worth it. Kind of makes me a whole lot happier than I was when I got up this morning. Because I wake up every morning... In this body, okay? I wake up in this creaky, bendy body, and I got to get up, and I got to stretch, and I got to try to get going, and I got to get my voice working again. And and I'm really looking forward to that whole new body thing. I'm really looking forward to that complete regenerative thing that God has planned someday. I'm really anticipating that. But from the way Paul describes it, that new body thing is just the beginning of what God has planned for those who love him. Here, let's read Paul say it. All that are being led by the Spirit of God, which means, as Gladys just rightly said, you have the Spirit of God inside you. He has deposited his Spirit in you if you're being led by that Spirit of God which he gave you You're the son of God. You're the heir. You're the child of God. For you have not received. Remember a moment ago, we talked about the difference between the child in the house and the servant in the house. You have not received a spirit of slavery, of servitude leading to fear again. God could have done that. God is well within his rights to say the best you can do is come be my servant. You get to be in my household, but the best you can do is serve me and you better do it or I'll cast you out that sense of fear. Fear, reverence, awe of God where you're constantly worried that you're just not performing good enough He says, that is the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. I really like the fact that he said, but you've not received that. No, that's not what we got. No. For you have not received a spirit of servitude again leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of sonship, a spirit of adoption. A spirit of being placed as a child of God. That's the spirit you received. And so as sons of God, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is just a a Greek and then English transliteration of an old Aramaic word that means father. It means dad. It means I'm your child. And the only reason we get to come to Him and call Him our Father is because He chose to adopt us and bring us to Himself. Therefore, we get to call Him Abba. The Spirit Himself, we're talking about the Holy Spirit now, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, the living spirit inside us, the thing that makes us alive. If you've ever seen anybody die, whether human or animal, you see that instant, that moment, when they go from being here to not being here anymore. And we know what it is that changed. That spirit of life has left them And so he is saying that the spirit of God, having taken up residence inside us, then bears witness to our living spirit that we are indeed the children of God. So you've got the Holy Spirit of God which God chose to put into some people, and I have to be very specific here when I say this, because Jesus even talked about the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And he prayed for those that God gave to him, the ones who had the spirit of God. And then he said, I pray not for the world. I pray for those that you gave me out of the world. And so not everybody receives the Holy Spirit. So then who makes you different than the rest of the world? Well, in the book of Corinthians, Paul says, who has made you to differ? And he answers the question. It's God that made you different. So it is God who decided, who determined that he was going to place his Holy Spirit inside some particular people and not everybody. And when that Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, it acts as a witness in order to testify to your spirit that you are indeed a child of God. Now, if that's who you are, how should you act? If that's who you are, chosen before the foundation of the world, if that's who you are, the habitation of the Holy Spirit of God, if that's who you are, the recipient of God's astounding goodness, grace, and glory who has decided that he's going to adopt you for all time and eternity and place his spirit inside you and place you as son, should you really act like the rest of the world? Who he didn't choose, who he didn't save, who he didn't give his spirit, there ought to be a distinction, a difference between you and the flesh. So, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, we're heirs also that's right not just a child of God an heir of everything God has heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ in that one little sentence he used the word heir three times he wants to make sure that you know your position is heir then that you're the heir of what the father has you're an heir of God And only Christ deserves to be the heir, so you are fellow heirs with Christ. If children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That's all part of that fellowship. Of being an heir. But notice that he keeps including trouble that you're going to have in this world. As I already said, Christ said, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul's theology consistently keeps saying, That we are given the faith, we are given the ability to believe, but we're also ordained to suffer for him. Here he says we're heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified with him. Suffering on this planet, in this world, necessitates that we be different than the world. If you're like the world, the world is loving its own. The world likes nothing more than to see somebody who claims to be Christian act like the world. Because not only does that make them feel better about their own fleshly activity, but it also (coughs) helps them to denigrate Christianity by saying, I thought you were supposed to be a Christian and you're just like me, so I guess there's nothing much to your Christianity. And so it is necessary in Paul's theology. That we not only recognize who we are and what Christ has done, what our inheritance is, what our future is, but it's necessary that we walk in a way... That is different than the world walks, even though the world is going to hate us for walking that way and we're going to suffer. But look what he just did. He created the parallel between our suffering and Christ's suffering. If you want to start thinking that you've suffered so far in this life, you haven't begun to suffer the way he did. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says that you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. In your striving against sin, you might run into some trouble, but you definitely haven't gone through the kind of agony that Christ went through, who not only was beaten at the hands of men, but then had to suffer the sin debt for all the people God had given him has he endured the wrath of God hanging on the cross and you are not ordained to wrath. So you're never going to know what it was like to suffer on the level that he suffered. And as long as you don't know what it's like to suffer the way he suffered, then you haven't suffered as much as he has and therefore shut up, quit complaining, take a hit. That's right. <laughs> you understand me? Yes, sir. Was that too blunt? No. Okay. You're going to suffer. If you're doing it right, you're going to suffer. Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. What was he talking about? He was talking about people who are so busy trying to satisfy the world that the world can't tell the difference. And then he said, woe to you if that's the case. If you claim to be my disciple and the world really loves you, then you're doing it wrong. If you're doing it right then suffering is coming as part of the package, but you have yet to suffer the way Christ has suffered, but it's worth it because you're fellow heir with Christ in your inheritance, which is an eternal inheritance. Look, I know I keep talking about being heir as if you're all just going to inherit mansions and Horse drawn carriages and every night is Cinderella. I think, me personally, I think if I can just share in that resurrection thing, I'm good to go. I got more than I deserve. If I get to partake in that eternal life thing, oh man, I inherited way above my status. I'm good, I'm happy. But then the Bible says that far beyond anything we can think and imagine, God also has that planned for us. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to walk according to the spirit as much as is humanly possible within me. Because I am really, really grateful and thankful for the fact that he has loved me so much that he would make me a son. So that I would be heir in everything that he has designed for Christ's inheritance. If I get to be part of that everlasting life, if I get to be part of that resurrection, if I get to be part of that whole future kingdom thing, we're going to come back to earth to rule and reign with Christ. Can you imagine? I mean, God's just good on top of good on top of good. If we're children, we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Christ is glorified at this moment. And we have the promise that we will be glorified and not just glorified to some lesser extent, but glorified with him. The language just keeps improving. Because, verse 18, because I consider that the suffering of this present time, right now, what we're going through, by the way, again, if you think you're really suffering for Christ, Paul had his head cut off. He was very blatant about his Christianity, he spent time in prison, he spent time under house arrest, and then he had his head lopped off. Nobody here has endured that kind of struggle yet. Whatever you do endure, that's what God has ordained as part of your struggle here on the planet. So again, beg him for the patience, pray to him, cry Abba Father, but endure it knowing that this is what he's designed for you. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. That's pretty good. I think I just put a different preposition there. Actually, the the verse here, according to the NASB, is the glory that is to be revealed to us. But it's going to be revealed to us. It's going to be revealed in us. It's going to be revealed around us. It's going to be revealed for us. Pick a preposition. I don't care. As long as I get part of that glory thing, as long as I get part of that inheritance that Christ alone deserves... then then what does it mean that I give up a few things here on the planet, here and now? What does it mean that I go through a bit of suffering and trials and some struggles now? I consider the suffering of this present time is not even worthy to be compared with how good it's going to get. And it will all be worth it. There's not going to be anybody in heaven asking for their money back. It's going to be completely worth it. And now he turns his attention to the whole of creation to give us some idea of what sin has created here on the planet. You know that when Adam and Eve sinned, that weeds, thorns, started infesting the ground. Death came to the planet. The first animal that was killed for Adam and Eve's sake, God himself killed. The whole of creation began to wind down. Any of you who have ever studied uh, thermonuclear dynamics? Anybody here ever studied thermonuclear dynamics? Oh, okay. What is it like the second law of thermonuclear dynamics essentially says that everything's running down. Things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse. And you can prove that really, really easily. Go to Walmart this afternoon, buy yourself a picnic table, put it outside, let it get rained on for a while. Is it going to improve? No, it's just going to get worse and worse and it's going to decay and it's going to get all kinds of moss and fungus on it and eventually you won't want to eat off it. Because everything on the planet including ourselves is running down. The planet itself is running down, which is why the Bible talks about new heavens, new earth, a recreation. Everything here is destructible. Everything here is destructible. Everything's going to burn. Everything's what? A constant state of entropy. entropy. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed in us for, because the anxious longing of the whole creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Do you understand what that's saying? It's saying that we in our fallen state right now are living in a fallen world as part of a fallen creation. Creation itself is anxiously awaiting its own remaking, its own reforming, its own rebirth, redevelopment. And when that happens, we become, in fact, sons of God. No longer having that fleshly body that we live in. We're going to have that. Spirit spiritual body, a body like Christ had that was as comfortable sitting at the right hand of God as he was comfortable frying fish by the Sea of Galilee. We're talking about a body that went through a rock, that went through a locked door, and then sailed off into the blue. That's the kind of body we're going to have when we become the sons of God. And the whole of creation is waiting for us to become the sons of God, because when we are revealed in that state that we are eternally promised to one day accomplish because we are heirs when that happens the whole creation begins its rebirth so the creation itself is waiting on leon so will you get busy it's just waiting For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. The creation, the planet, the world. When sin came into the world, it was then subject to this running down. And no matter what it does, it just keeps getting worse. And that's that futility that it's in. But it was subjected to that futility not by its own will. The creation didn't decide that it was just going to get worse and worse. God subjected the creation to this state of getting worse and worse. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it. Because of God who did it, but he did it in hope. The creation itself exists in this hope, this anticipation, this anxious longing for its recreation in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this whole adoption thing is a whole lot bigger than, yay, we, I'm going to get stuff. Once the church of Jesus Christ makes the transition from being an earthly enterprise to a glorified eternal enterprise, then the creation itself is going to begin its reestablishment and its rebirth. And Paul personifies the whole of creation and says the creation itself is longing anxiously for this event that we know is coming. And that God subjected the whole creation into this futility so that hope would exist. The creation hopes. We hope. I hope. Do you hope? Are you hoping that someday your faith is going to become sight? Are you hoping that one day this body is going to put on immortality? Are you hoping that this mortal is going to put on that everlasting body that we're promised? Well, Paul is saying that God did all that on purpose. This is His grand design. This is so far beyond any of our conception. He created the whole thing in this running down form, so that it can all collectively, we the creation, all so that we can look to Him. And look forward, hopefully, to what he has promised is going to happen.
1: Great heritage.
0: Great Great heritage. heritage. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Again, that personification of the creation. The creation hopes. The creation groans. The creation anxiously looks forward The whole of creation groans, suffers like a woman about to give birth, suffers the pains of childbirth together, the whole of it, all the way up until now. And not only this, as if that weren't enough, and not only this, but also we, ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit of God, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Amen. You Who is right? Isn't that true? Don't you groan inside yourself? Don't you hope? Don't you anticipate? If you're young like Christian, who is young and strapping and healthy and can run faster and jump higher, and he doesn't know the longing... Hey. That we old guys know. Because we reach the point where we're just, okay, enough is enough. I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. I'm really looking forward to that whole recreation, new body thing. And I long for it. I desire it. I crave it. We ourselves, we
1: groan
0: within ourselves. Waiting eagerly for our adoption The redemption of our bodies. I can't wait until my faith becomes sight. I can't wait till I get to heaven. And I know I'm going to try not to blurt it out. I'm going to try not to just. But I know I'm going to get to heaven and look around and go. It's real. I'm here. It's happening. This is everything I've lived for. This is what I want. But right now until I can get there. Everything in me desires it, groans for it, anticipates it, because in hope, verse 24, in hope, remember I keep saying that's that word El peace in the Greek. It doesn't mean like I hope I get a bike for Christmas. I hope that something may or may not happen. The Greek word means an anxious looking forward to something you know is coming. You know it's going to happen. It's got that same The same way that pistis is faith, it has that el pis root to it. It's a confident looking forward to something you know is coming. I know that my redemption of my body, I know that's coming. I know that the resurrection is coming. I know deep inside me that heaven is real and I can't wait to see it. And God subjected the whole of his creation, including me, into this futility so that we would hope because in hope we've been saved when God saved us he saved us by his spirit put that down payment of his spirit inside us in order to guarantee that everything else he has said is true And because I know confidently that that's coming, because I have the testimony of his spirit inside me, that guarantee inside me, I just constantly anticipate what's coming. And that's the way God designed it. That's the way he did it. That's the way he planned it so that through your whole life, you're anticipating him. You're looking forward to what's coming. You're living in that constant state of hopefulness for what's coming. For in hope, we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Here's Paul's logic now. Paul says, why are you looking forward to something you got? I can say I'm going to give you something, definitely going to give you something this afternoon. I will give you something this afternoon. But once I give it to you, you stop looking forward to it. You have it. Well, Paul says, hope that is seen, well, then once you've seen it, why do you then hope for it? But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does somebody hope for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we eagerly long for it. We wait for it. We desire it. It's all part of God's master plan to make sure that those that are his through their whole life are looking to him and longing for what's coming. God knows what he's doing. He's going to take you through times of trouble. Why? To build up your faith. He's going to take you through times of futility. Why? To build your hope. He's going to take you through times of trouble and trials and struggles in this world till you have nobody to look to but him. He's going to do that on purpose. He's going to make you completely and utterly dependent on him. That's what he does. He's in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And the way that he does that is by drawing his chosen people to himself. And so he has put us here in these decaying bodies, in this rundown creation, so that we would look forward to and anticipate the day when that's no longer going to be us. He did that on purpose. Why? Because he loves us. Because he knows what's good for us. And what's good for us is him. What's good for us is constantly longing for him. What's good for us is having the hope, the desire for the things that only he can satisfy. That's why he did it this way. You get it? Good plan. Good plan. Now, in three weeks, I'll be back. And we'll get to the part of Romans 8 you've all been looking forward to. Because so far in the book of Romans... We have not seen the word election. We have not seen the word predestination. It just hasn't happened. And yet Paul has described for us in great and grand detail. Not only our sinfulness. But what it takes to deliver us. And what our hope for the future is. And so I believe. And we will talk in three weeks about. The sound doctrine. As Paul continues to be very specific in his theology he's now going to turn to all this before the foundation of the world stuff but first he had to lay out what it is that God has done for us sinners and how he has chosen us how he has adopted us what it is that he has accomplished for us the hope that he has put in us and then he can get to the predestination and election stuff so that's what we'll talk about next Everything in its proper order. Right? Questions. I preached myself happy this morning. I don't know about the rest of you. You can do whatever you want to do today. You can go outside and be grumpy. I don't care. I'm sorry I interrupted you so much, but I just
1: can't it. I'm just waiting for it.
0: <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to assume that every one of those interruptions was a big Amen. Well there it is then. (laughs) Betty. The
1: older you get, you get more at peace and you get there's something about knowing God more deeply. It gives you this deep peace and a quietness within yourself, but also an excitement for this. And you're so grateful to be a believer.
0: A quiet excitement. I agree with you, Betty. The longer you walk with Christ and the older you get, the more you get that peace that passes understanding. And, and there's that anticipation and excitement, but also that sense of I'm in good hands. He's got me. And you know so. what well, the
1: thing of it was? as I began all this walk, I was depending on me. Yeah. And now as I get farther and farther along, I see. It's him. Foolish. It's foolish. Yeah.
0: It's so foolish to depend on me. you which is why we all collectively, none of us depend on you. So That's, that's a joke. Anything else? All right then. Say goodbye to the Internet Congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for
1: listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to
0: visit our website, at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.